Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Connor. Uh, Your reading of the passage reminded me of something that happened when I was a student here. Somebody asked me to read in chapel. A Stuart-like character asked me to read in chapel. And I forgot until the last minute. And it it was one of those passages with all the funky names in it. And I just want to say, I got to give you your propers. You nailed it. Good job. Let's pause for a moment. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather together this morning. I would ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think about the book of Genesis? If we were to conduct a survey in the spirit of the game show Family Feud, (laughs) what do you think the number one answer would be? What do you think about when you think about the book of Genesis? My guess is that science would come to be the top answer. Culture wars, more specifically, creation versus evolution, and all of that stuff that we've heard ad nauseum for decades. But here's the thing. When we frame a discussion with the wrong questions, our answers are going to be at best unhelpful and at worst misleading and harmful. I would humbly suggest that the proof is in the cultural wars pudding. Expecting Genesis to answer specific questions about modern scientific debates is to frame things in a distracting and potentially misleading and harmful manner. Yes, Genesis is in some senses about beginnings, including the beginnings of the created world. But Genesis is most importantly about the beginnings of a people group, a family really who would become the nation of Israel. And more importantly, or more specifically than that beginning, is that Genesis tells us about the beginnings of this family getting to know who God is. So a key beginning of Genesis is the beginning of a relationship. Genesis, of course, divides pretty neatly into two major sections. Genesis 1 through 11 displays God's creative handiwork and, of course, the response of humans to God, which is not very good. Spoiler alert, things go down the tubes very quickly. But Genesis 12 through 50 is God stepping in in a new way, in a powerful way, and revealing himself to this man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us the story of God making himself known to this Abram, and and asking him to follow him to Canaan, 
away from Babylon and its families and it's his family and its idols. And this, this family that accompanies Abram to Canaan eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And instead of unhelpful questions, we need a more constructive way to frame Genesis. And I would su suggest to you that one of the good options, one of the better options is the question posed by author and prolific podcaster Pete Enns, who puts it this way, is the God of Genesis worthy of worship? Is he worthy of worship? In other words, what does Genesis say about God? On more than one occasion, it says that Abram or Abraham worshiped God. But why did he do that? And by extension, should we follow his lead? These are the kinds of questions I want us to think about this morning as we spend some time reflecting on the Abraham stories from Genesis 12 and following. A good place to begin is a couple of passages after the passage Connor read for us in Genesis 17, which is another covenant scene with Abraham. And a covenant, of course, is a, a solemn agreement between two parties. And part of this agreement that God makes with Abraham is that God promises to be God to Abraham and his descendants. Now, on its own, that's a little bit generic, especially for us today. But I think that the passage that Connor read for us sheds some light on what this means. But let's admit it. On the surface, Genesis 15 is bizarre. With the animals split in two, we can be forgiven for thinking that Abraham had a vision of roadkill on the 101. But the message is actually pretty simple. Other ancient treaties between two groups may shed some light on our passage in that they've been understood to function as an announcement. If the group that passes between the parts of the animal doesn't keep its end of the bargain, it will suffer the same fate as the animal. So do we see what God is saying to Abraham here? He's saying, I'm going to keep my covenant. I will give you descendants and they will be a great nation and nothing, absolutely nothing is going to stop that. In other words, I will be your God. I will protect you. And if I don't, I will become like this animal. And to show how serious he is, to demonstrate that he means business, God is effectively calling a curse down on himself if he doesn't keep this covenant. I doubt that Abraham forgot this anytime soon. And this, of course, complements God's very first words to Abraham in Genesis 12, which I'm going to read. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's protection and his provision can be summarized, and this is important, can be summarized as a willingness to bless. And that in and of itself is a wonderful thing to think about. Contrary to what we hear sometimes, God is not out to get people. 
He's not looking for humanity to get it wrong and then to pounce on them. God's impulse is to bless, to help, and to provide. And I'll come back to that in a second. But there's something vitally important to keep in mind if we take a closer look at God's willingness to bless. God doesn't bless Abram so he can sit back in a lawn chair with an umbrella drink and say, wow, God's blessed me. Hashtag too blessed to be stressed. I must be something special. No, from the outset, we learn that God blesses people so that they will be a blessing to others. In you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. The fact that we're reflecting on these stories in 2022 suggests we've been blessed through Abraham, and that's something I'll come back to in a second as well. However, for now, I'd like us to think about how God taught Abraham and his family how to be a blessing. There's all kinds of examples in the Abraham story. And Stuart mentioned that I was on sabbatical from January to June. And part of my devotional reading during that time was to read these stories and to reflect on them. There's lots here, more than I can cover this morning. So it's true. A little bit later in the story, God says to Abraham, walk with me and be blameless. But God doesn't give up on Abraham when he misses that high calling. You know, Abraham is later celebrated as a model of faith. Just read the epistle to the Romans or the epistle to the Hebrews. But what I love about the Abraham stories is that there are times when Abraham is a coward. Right after the part that we just read in Genesis 12, Abram and his wife Sarai are on the way down to Egypt. Hey, Sarai, tell Pharaoh you're my sister so I don't get it. All right? And that totally backfires. God demonstrates, though, that he has Abram's back. And what I love about this even more is that he does basically the same thing later in the story. Read Genesis chapter 20. But God doesn't give up on Abram, later called Abraham. He gives him additional chances to demonstrate that he can be faithful. He gives him another shot. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel pretty good because sometimes my faith is all right. And sometimes I'm a coward. Maybe none of you can relate to that. We're called to be perfect, but God is patient with us when we fail to meet that lofty goal. Another snapshot from the Abraham stories is a passage that one of our students, our former students, Andrew Sutherland, preached on a few years back, and it was a great sermon. I'm talking, of course, about Genesis 16 and the Sarah and Hagar incident. I heard a sermon back in the summer, and it reminded all of us that it's all too easy to snub our noses at other people, maybe without even realizing it. But the Sarah and Hagar story is wonderful. Let me just summarize it very quickly. Of course, the, the thread through all of these stories is that Abram, Abram and Sarah don't have a child. They go through some various ways of thinking about this and how they can make this happen. And one of the, one of the genius, sarcasm, brainwaves that Abram and Sarah have is, well, it's actually Sarah's idea. Why don't I give you my servant Hagar 
you can have a baby with her. Long story short, Hagar conceives and she decides to do the neener, 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 I have a baby, you don't routine with her master. And of course, Sarah doesn't um, respond to this exceptionally well. And uh, she, with Abraham's kind of implicit permission, just treats Hagar terribly. And the temptation here, folks, would be to say, you know what? Hagar deserved it. But that is not the point of the story. God comforts a distraught and scared Hagar. And really what this story is about, I think, and what Andrew brought out in it a few years back, is that it's about power dynamics. And what this story teaches us is that God affirms the powerless. And that's something we should do as well. Last but not least, I'm going to bring these together at the end. Last but not least, Sarah laughs, and I love this. Sarah laughs in Genesis 18 at God's reaffirmation that she and Abraham are really going to have a son. And what I love about this passage is that if you want to summarize it, it's a shame buster. It's a shame buster. That's what Sarah was feeling because she couldn't have a kid. In their day, in their day, there was a stigma attached to not having a child, not to mention the socioeconomic realities, but God must be out to get me if I can't have a child. That's what people, or, or people would look at them and say, oh, well, you can't have a child. What, it, what, what sin in your life is there because of, you know, what, you know what I'm trying to say. And Sarah denies laughing, and this is another part that I love, but God's not concerned about that. God uses his power to alleviate shame and suffering, and that should be our M.O., what is in our power, and our power might not be that much, but what do we have in us? What has God given us to alleviate shame and suffering? I've hinted at how these stories are relevant for us. And I think it's especially crucial as Christians that we recognize that there isn't this disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus reiterated all of these things for his followers, that we are called to the high standard of loving God and loving others. But that doesn't mean Jesus kicks us to the curb when our faith is even smaller than a mustard seed. Jesus spent time with and defended those on the margins of society, and he calls us to do the same using whatever power we have to accomplish this. Here's something else to keep in mind. The first words of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, are these. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the culmination of God's promise to Abraham that the world would be blessed through him. And as Christians, it's our responsibility and our privilege 
to live out Jesus' teachings in such a way that we are a blessing, not a bane to others. I've heard a lot of talk in the last few years about my rights. Maybe you have too. But as Jesus' followers, that should never be the loudest instrument in the mix. One last thing that I hope will bring all of this together. A little bit later in the chapter, in chapter one of Matthew, Jesus is described as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the last thing Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not a mistake. I don't know about you, but during this pandemic, life has felt at times uncertain, crazy, and sometimes even scary. Add rising interest rates, the war in Ukraine, and hurricanes to the mix, and we're just having a great old time, aren't we? Maybe you feel even right now, maybe that you're saying the pandemic's the worst of it's over, but I still feel scared. I would encourage you because in my better moments, I take comfort in the fact that the same God who solemnly assured Abraham that he would be his God and his shield, that this God has revealed himself most fully and perfectly as Emmanuel who has promised to be with us to the very end. This is more than a theoretical doctrine or an abstract thought. In the summer, I ran into someone I hadn't seen in a while, a friend of my parents, um, a family friend. And we got to, to chatting and he was telling me that in the last two years, he had a bout with cancer. And he, he, this, is, this guy, you know these people, they wear their heart on their sleeves. You, you, you run into him after not seeing him for a few years and all of a sudden every moment from the last time you met until the present, he's telling you about it. Maybe you know somebody like that. It was great. As somebody who is quiet and doesn't say a lot, I'm happy for somebody else to do the talking. I'll listen. But he said this, one night... He woke up in the middle of the night in the, in the midst of this battle with cancer, and he was afraid. And he said this, I kept thinking, I'm alone. I'm alone. And he said, you know what? I started to pray, and I knew that that was a lie. He said, I knew that was a lie. He, wasn't, he didn't say it in exactly these words but he was experiencing the truth that our God is Emmanuel, that he's with us no matter what. He's our shield, he's our God. I wanna to refer to another sermon that I heard a while back in this very room. It's when I was a student and the late Dave Porter was preaching during chapel. And he said, I wanna encourage every single one of you he said, in the midst of a semester, things can feel overwhelming. You have those church history papers to write. Those are the worst. <laughs> you, you have vocabulary quizzes to take. 
I think that it could be debated whether the preaching in class is, is the worst, but uh, we can talk about that afterwards. Exegesis papers, evangelism, assignments, you name it. It's easy to be overwhelmed. And what Dave said to us that morning, back in 2005 or 2006, I want to say to you this morning, Emmanuel is indeed Emmanuel. He's with you. He's your shield. He's your God. Reach out to him. Reach out to your fellow students. Reach out to your profs. Reach out to our wonderful staff. May we be Emmanuel. May we share Emmanuel with each other. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the promises of the scriptures. We thank you for the Abraham stories. We thank you that there's not this large disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We thank you that the way you revealed yourself to Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, and their family, that we see those truths echoed in the teachings of Jesus, who is our Emmanuel. May we take great comfort in these truths, and may, may we share that experience, may we share these things with each other, may we remind each other of these things, that you are our shield and our God. Increase our faith when we have little, and may we love you and love others as you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.